Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Mark Bignago, Assistant Professor in the Physical Therapy Department at the University of Colorado in Aurora. And we are here to talk about his most recent article, The Impact of COVID-19 on community-based exercise classes for people with Parkinson's disease. This article can be found in the November issue of PTJ. All of PTJ's COVID-19 articles are open access. So Mark, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's great to be here. And I should say welcome back because you've been on the podcast before. Yeah, I kind of... uh got on the back end of an invite from Paul Klein when he <laughs> won an award for us. So yeah, that was fun, but we're excited to have you back. We always like to bring people back when we can and they're, when they're doing exciting things. And this was interesting to us because of its relevance, probably to so many of our listeners and also um, because it addresses the impact of COVID-19, which we are still dealing with still here with us. So tell us a little bit about how this paper came to be. Yeah, so for a long time, we've been talking about working with our local Parkinson's group, so the Parkinson's Association of the Rockies, to do some work regarding outcomes related to community-based exercise classes. I think it's such a, a kind of a cool and unique population to study in that regard because there's such a strong network of community-based classes like across the nation. I think maybe more than other neurologic conditions, there's Mm -hmm. this really kind of strong network of community-based classes for people with Parkinson's. But then this question was more like, well, now with COVID, and this was sort of in the height of a lot of the restrictions of COVID when we did this project, um, most of these classes were in person at the time, uh, or at least before COVID hit. So what's what's happened to them? and, And how has that that we we just kind of hypothesize, right? That must be having a huge impact on this population. Mm-hmm. So we were just interested in in really getting a snapshot of what might be happening because mm-hmm. of COVID. Okay. And so how did you go about collecting data? Yeah, so we we made a survey. So we you know piloted different versions of the survey, came up with different frameworks. We integrated a couple standardized questionnaires into the survey, piloted it with people with Parkinson's and other kind of older adults until we had something that we kind of thought captured, you know, a lot of the constructs that we were trying to get at um, Mm -hmm. and also was kind of feasible for people to do. By the time we got this out, it must've been towards the end of 2020. So people were also getting kind of tired, I think of online stuff and survey stuff. And so um, that was important as well. Okay. And so you developed this electronic survey and who did you survey people, the participants in these classes? Yeah. So the main criteria, if I remember correctly, was that people self-reported that they participated in these classes regularly for at least three months prior to March of 2020. So people were already doing it. 
Yeah. Right. And then you also surveyed instructors, correct? When we originally thought of it, we we were interested mostly in, in the participants, but we realized that we would want to get the point of view of the instructors as well. Mm-hmm. And we thought that might be particularly useful in understanding how we might design future classes, right, from the instructor perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, then we, we also decided to include instructors, correct? Okay. All right. So you developed a survey, and then did you collect any other data? You mean like performance data or something or anything? Yeah. No. So it was all survey. It was all anonymous. And we kind of had our custom-built questionnaires and then uh, a few more kind of standardized outcomes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the people with PD filled out the survey that you created and then also a few other things, mm-hmm. um, including the PDQ8, the self-efficacy for exercise scale, the Schwab England scale, which looks at like ADLs and stuff, correct? Yes, correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then what's the Godin Leisure Time questionnaire that you Godin Leisure folks? Time questionnaire is used a lot in certainly NMS and, and um, Parkinson's as a self-report measure for someone's level of uh, regular engagement in physical activity. Mm-hmm. Somewhat reliable you know, matched with something like, you know, uh, actigraphy, like some sort of activity monitor mm-hmm. to determine people's physical activity level. Right. Okay. And we had a series of questions that also related to the social aspect of these classes and more, more I guess, like psychosocial type barriers and, and, and issues that might be coming up with mm-hmm. uh, not being in class or maybe doing virtual classes. Right. Yeah. I'm curious about how you got these people. Where did you advertise? Yeah. So we mostly work through our our local Parkinson's group. So the Parkinson's Association of the Rockies. And so they helped us distribute it. And then we also, so most of the co-investigators were from the University of Colorado, but we also worked with Gamma Earhart from WashU in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And she helped distribute it through the American Parkinson's Disease Association, Greater St. Louis chapter. So they they helped us distribute it as well. Mm-hmm. So that went out to both participants and instructors. And then we also found a listserv of instructors for these classes nationwide um, okay. and presented it to that listserv. So that's, I think that's where we got most of our instructor responses. So... The participants you got mostly from the sort of local programs Mm -hmm. in both Colorado and in the St. Louis area, but the instructors you got there, but also from this listserv, is that correct? Yeah. And, and people could send it out to their friends and their friends could fill it out. Um, And so we use that type of what we call snowball sampling to get kind of as many people as we could. Right. But yeah, the main the main recruitment was kind of locally at the two sites. So you basically like you were just looking for people with Parkinson's that would, that are, were exercising Mm -hmm. under that, those criteria prior to Mm -hmm. the pandemic and then instructors, but you didn't necessarily try to have them linked. Right. So it wasn't like you took 
the instructors and said, hey, please send this to all your participants? Uh, we did do that. But, oh, but yes, there was no way to link if, you know, one whole class filled it out or if an instructor and, and, a, and a participant in the same class filled it out. Right. right. Okay. All right. So how many people responded? So we had 87 people with Parkinson's respond and 43 instructors. That's good. That seems like, I mean, I think if I remember from reading the paper, that was over what you thought you needed for the power that you. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think we always want as many as we can get and we were kind of hopeful we might get more. But yeah, it, it ends up being a, you know, a decent amount, I think, maybe to get a snapshot. Um, and then even though we did send it to just those two local areas, we did get um, responses from 20 different states. So it's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so what did you find? Yeah, good, good question. We found a lot. So we asked a lot of questions. So we were interested in a few different kind of main areas. We were first interested in like, how active people are being. And the limitation was, you know, this is a cross-sectional study in the middle of 2020. Um, So we didn't have like an objective measure of how active they were before COVID started. But based on the GLTQ, most of these people were still pretty active in some way. So they they were considered... um, to be sort of sufficiently active in terms of physical activity based on the scale. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it was like close to 80%. And I guess that wasn't too surprising considering that these were people who would have been considered active on this, on this golden leisure time questionnaire based on the classes they attended before. So, you know, in some way that's good. They were still maintaining some minimal level of physical activity, mm-hmm. but then what we also did, and it was a pretty simple set of questions, we asked if people's um, frequency that they exercised had changed since March of 2020, um, and then if their intensity had also changed. And we did find that overall, I think 60%, about 60% of people said they were doing less um, frequency of exercise, and about the same number also said that they were doing less intense. They felt like they were doing less intense exercise overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that probably isn't that surprising given that they're outside of their structured in-person classes and then all the other limitations that were happening, uh, with COVID at the time. And, and so were all of these people in virtual classes at this point, or did some of them like stop going to classes Were some of them doing still doing in-person? Cause I know some places stopped, right. but only for a very short time. Yeah. So we, we, and we missed that window because we didn't do it right away in COVID. So I think Mm -hmm. when we got to these people, yes, a lot of the virtual classes had already been set up and had been going for, you know, a little bit at least. And yeah, so that's a great point. So that's kind of the second main area that we wanted to know about was the obvious solution to, to COVID for these classes was to go virtual. And yeah, it turned out that um, a lot of people were doing virtual classes um, and a lot of instructors were offering virtual classes. And, and when we asked them to kind of think back before COVID, very few people were doing virtual classes, both instructors and um, the students. So it was very, it's all very new for both the participants and the instructors. Mm-hmm. So like 90% of the instructors 
or let's put it the other way, only 10% of the instructors were doing any kind of virtual classes before COVID. Yeah. And 60 or so percent of the instructors after March were starting to do virtual classes. So it's a big change. Uh, mm-hmm. And then in terms of the in-person, I think all the participants were doing in-person class before. Right. And then it's about half we're, we're doing virtual afterwards. So. Yeah. And, but there were still some that were still doing in-person probably by the time you, they took the survey. Yeah. So the time, I think it was kind of in the late, early fall, maybe late summer um, through the end of 2020. So like maybe through December, January of 2021. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was some, you know, I think it was about 40% looking at this that we're doing at least once a week in person. Mm-hmm. Um, for for the participants yeah so but again that's from 100 percent. so it's a big still a big shift yeah and also i think that there are there are probably some places where that it was possible for folks and other yeah. places where it's not like i know here we didn't go back to in person until very very recently yes so in and that my- at that time it wouldn't have even been an option yeah, it's definitely a limitation of, of this report is it would we probably didn't have enough sampling of the states to, to make any kind of meaningful analysis there. Right. Um, but we did think about when we, you know, when we were thinking our 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 sites, our second site at least, um, you know, Missouri did have quite different and and looser regulations than Colorado did in the first year of the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. And to your point. Um, you know, I was just talking with this Parkinson's Association a couple of weeks ago. They're, they still have a lot of classes that are still virtual. Um, yeah, for sure. So that brings us to another um, point, which I thought was interesting and that I've heard sort of anecdotally. So it was, it was interesting to see it, which is a lot of instructors feel like they're going to have to continue to offer virtual classes, even as they start to go back to in-person, you know, is that something that, that you saw with these instructors that responded? Yeah. And we phrase it a little differently. I mean, we, we phrase it, I think more, um, not like, you know, do you feel like you're going to have to do it, but would you, would you continue to offer this once the pandemic and ended and went back when we thought it might end? It was relatively high. I think it was about 60% or so of, of the uh, instructors said they would probably, they would consider, you know, planning to, to offer those. And, right. and I also thought it was quite a few people who, participants who would want to have the option also to have a virtual class in the future. Um, right. It was certainly a quite a bit more than zero. Um, so mm-hmm. Yeah. And what were some of the things that people liked about the virtual classes? Well, well, we'll say start at the instructors, I guess, is, is working from home, right? So that was, a, that was kind of the top, one of the top reasons and um, the safety piece of it. So, you know, the, the exposure risk, this was pre-vaccine and everything as well. So the, right. that was the big kind of positive uh, take home from a lot of the instructors. And actually, those were the same for the for the, the at least the top two for the uh, participants as well. Yeah, the lack the the lack of having to travel. 
Yeah. I think can be big, especially at certain times of the year in certain parts of the country where. Yeah, absolutely. It can be tricky to travel. Yeah, it is interesting, though, if you're looking back at that now and thinking about if we redid it, you know, now when we're still kind of in it and there's probably still a good mix of, of you know, both in person and virtual, if that would still be the same, you know, or are people kind of tired of it? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I know this I, completely anecdotally, our exercise program here has been virtual for a long time and we started back a few months ago with in-person classes and there are some people that do both you know they'll go two days a week to the in-person classes and then two days a week that they're not there they do the virtual class and um you know so that i think that some people really like having that option yeah actually so that's funny i just pulled up so we have a supplementary table in the paper that has all the kind of all the questions we asked and the answers and yeah following those two it was kind of a tie, but it, but the, the thing people liked the participants was more having more options, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was there, like having that flexibility, um, both in the live. And then we asked about recorded classes as well. And just having those kind of like videos to watch and, and people like that a lot as well. So, yeah, uh, I agree. I, I think we're, we're seeing that here as well, where people will, some people just like, to stay virtual. Um, and then some people, yeah, they're like, Oh, I'll do virtual once a week and in-person once a week. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think for a lot of places, it's at this point still just going to be dependent on what's available Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and you know, what people can really do and take advantage of. Um, so let's talk a little bit though, about the barriers for the virtual class. Yeah. The, the, those were, I mean, maybe one of the more interesting results for me because they didn't match as well as some of the other things did. So the instructors told us that or responded that they had a lot of trouble with participants using their technology and Mm -hmm. they didn't have the right one. It didn't work. And you can imagine, and I, you know, we've all experienced that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the participants, I don't even think it made it on the top 10 of things that they were worried about, right? So either they were having the problems and were just oblivious to them and or didn't bother them, right? So right. Um, whereas the instructors are really focused on that. And then the other one that the instructors were concerned about, as we can all kind of empathize with, with as PTs, is fall risk. So, you know, you're home doing these exercises, I imagine, and it's like, who's guarding you or who's making sure you're safe or Right. Sure, you know, half the time you're in and out of the screen. So, right. So, and, and, and again, that wasn't a concern for, or at least wasn't in the top um, of the concerns for the participants. Yeah. I wonder if part of the reason for the discrepancy is that the instructors are seeing the gamut of yeah. all of the people that are coming to class, but the people that are responding to your survey, I mean, if you're not that tech savvy, you might not choose to take an online survey. You might not do this. Very true. Well, and I think it's true. If you have one person out of 10 that's having tech problems, it's going to, you're never going to forget that because it interrupts your whole class for you. Right. It can throw but a wrench. The other nine people didn't have any problems. So they're like, yeah, whatever. Um, right. And they don't even notice that was happening. Yeah. But it does highlight that, you know, that the, the need to, 
now that we're doing so much more of it, right? That, I mean, obviously that's become an issue that we're all dealing with and having to be proactive about is technology. And that's what we have found that we have to be proactive. So we actually have our new people newly coming to virtual classes meet with a volunteer ahead of time on Zoom and they go through all of the like, how do you mute? How do you unmute? Where should you set yourself up in your house so we can see you? And, you know, they spend some time kind of doing all those things. And then we also have a volunteer in the class, in every class, who, if somebody's having technical difficulties, can call them on the phone and do that. So the instructor can continue to instruct. That's brilliant. That's great. I mean, that's exactly the type of, you know, sort of take home, I think, that we wrote about in this paper was like, you just have to, you you know, want to be proactive about those types of things. Yeah. But you have to have the the person power to you do have it. To be, yeah. You have to be able to do it. Yeah, exactly. And that can be really tricky. Um, we have found though, that PT students actually in the virtual realm are great because, you know, as long as they have that time free, they can kind of log on from wherever they are. Yeah. And they can, they don't have to be that close. So, you know, some of our, some of yeah. our students are like, you know, a hundred miles at another college down the road, but they can really help and participate in these virtual classes, which is really cool. Yeah. It's the, it's the silver lining, right. Of some of these things yeah. of, the, of the virtual uh, yeah. world. Um, they go home on break. It doesn't really matter. We just see them in a different environment, you know, it's exactly. kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and plus they know what they're doing too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's been, it's been kind of fun and interesting yeah. um, to, to adapt, but the constant adaptation can get a little tiring too. Yeah. The two years of it is getting tiring. Yeah, for, for sure. But yeah, we're learning from it. So. Yeah, that's true. So speaking of learning from it, one of the things that I think is important to highlight is um, the f- the report of your participants that they're exercising less and that it's not as intense. You know, would you say that was fairly strong across the participants? Yeah. So we had, uh, I mean, again, these are just Likert scales um, of self-reported changes, um, but it was about 60% for both. um, And then it was about 30 to 40% said they were about the same, which is, which is good. You know, if this is six or eight months into the pandemic and during that time they've been, you know, less active, it's hard to say exactly how much we can't quantify it, but even, even a little less active, um, then we know that's going to have downstream effects that we're going to be seeing. We're seeing those now probably. And so, yeah, I mean, I think any, any, any gains you can you would lose with any patients over that time period are going to be with with that type of diagnosis and at that age range are going to be impactful in some way. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was trying to think as a clinician with this information like what would I do with this information and I think if if I'm seeing a patient and they're doing virtual classes you know, maybe recognizing that maybe they're not getting the intensity. We have certainly found that like, it's hard for us to push the cardiovascular intensity as much as we can in person. And when we've gone back to the in-person classes, that's what our 
virtual participants who go to the in-person classes, that's what they say. They say, I can't get, yeah. I can't get the, that same intensity of, of workout at home as I can in the gym. And so, you know, as a therapist, seeing that participant as a patient, I might try to work a little bit more on how do we get you some intense exercise? Do you have a bike, you know, a stationary bike at home or a treadmill or someplace where we can really exercise, get that exercise that, that you're yeah, kind of missing absolutely. from the class? Yeah. I think that's one thing we sort of concluded in this or discussed at least is, is, is that this population is, you know, as a whole group of people, if they're doing these virtual classes, yeah, they're going to need something more and what, what it's going to be, right. It's a clinical decision and it's going to be very much individualized, but um, some unique approach of intervention to get them up, you know, to their activity level. Maybe it's, maybe it's another person who's the the tech intro, you have the, the RP scale intro. So they're, they're understanding what that means or, you know, maybe you can see them once in your clinic and, and do like a mini exercise test and get them, you know, understanding what that RP should mean and where they should be. And then, and then, you yeah. Can and, but I just think it's hard for, for people to push themselves uh, yeah. that way when they're alone. So, you know, in general, all of us, it's, it's a little bit hard, but particularly for people with PD that already have some bradykinesia, you know, if they don't have that like person right there staring at them, the competition of the person next to them that's, you know, moving back and forth and moving faster. I think all of that can really help to contribute to the intensity that you really just can't do with a, you know, two-dimensional screen. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and to that point, actually, you know, when you go back to the barriers of the virtual classes, one of the more interesting findings, again, this is sort of contrasted with what the instructor said, but the participants, their top barriers were not tech. They weren't physical. They weren't safety. They were all about the lack of socialization and the Mm -hmm. lack of accountability. So I think that's maybe what you're getting at even a little bit. It's like, um, and then we actually had an overall barrier, like ever since COVID started, like what are some of your biggest barriers to exercise? And the top one was uh, lack of motivation to exercise. So um, there, there's something there in, uh, we think, and, and we want to start looking at that actually is like the, the social support part of these classes that is super important to people. Super important. Uh-huh. Yeah. We call it social cohesion. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And it is definitely a big part. And it's the thing that people talk about over and over and over again. Yeah. And And how do you get that in a virtual realm? And so what we do is we actually, we use our volunteers again, and we do 15 minutes before, and then we stay on for 15 minutes after. And we have a prompt. Yeah, chatter. We have a prompt ahead of time and people talk about coffee versus tea, go, you know, things that are just just kind of fun. Um, You get to, you do get to know people and some people are talkers and they will talk and other people never talk, but they will still report to us that Mm. they enjoy that, that they like like hearing about what other people are doing and they feel like they're part of a group. And, you know, when something happens to somebody in the group, um, you know, people are, are concerned and reach out to each other and, and, but it's, it's definitely not the same, but I think that 
there, there is a way to foster that. It just has to kind of be done. Yeah. Yeah. That's Um, exactly what we kind of implied with some of this in the discussion is that, yeah, you got to find a way, you got to probably find creative ways to, if you're going to do virtual classes or if you have to do virtual classes to, to, to have some of this socialization and have some of this accountability and, and I don't know, honestly, things that some people might not have thought about as much before, um, before we had to go to virtual, right. That was so important about those in-person classes. You just took it for granted. Um, But it is a huge part of it, I think. And along with that, we were really interested. We we didn't really formally ask about depression and anxiety and things like that, but other studies during COVID have shown that older adults and people with MS. And I believe also, yeah, I think there was a, we cited a study, big study in Parkinson's. Yep. Huge, you know, big increases in anxiety and depression. And, um, you know, one thing we asked here that probably has changed right since the beginning of the pandemic is, you know, some people were like only leaving their house once a week. Um, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not even just the classes. It's like they're just home alone, probably afraid to a certain extent to leave. And that's just that's not healthy. Right. So. Right. That's going to affect you in many, on many levels. Yeah. And but I think a lot happens in the in-person class as people are filtering in and filtering out where they talk with each other and, you know, that it's, it's sort of like organic, it just happens and you're not, you're not really a hundred percent aware really of it, but, but it's a very important part, I think for the people. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something, you know, even it's, it's, it is more convenient to be home. But there's something about like getting dressed and getting out of the house and, you know, mm-hmm. intentionally having, you know, going to this class and taking time out of your day um, that I think there's some some mental health benefits, right? And that 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 people are getting from that. So, yeah, but I love your insight on these on these virtual classes. I, I think, you know, it it is going to be part of our reality uh, moving forward. And I do think it's important to just, it's just a matter of, we can do it, like figuring out ways that, that it make it work. Yeah. And the, the other group I think that it might stick around for is as people, as the disease progresses, lower level people. So we've right. been doing a seated class with lower level people that often have a family member or caregiver yeah. that helps them. Um, but they don't, you know, they might not have enough independence to make it to a class, but that has been super interesting. We've had people that have continued exercising within, you know, two weeks of, of passing, you know, they really, they stick with it right until the end. Cause it's that important to them and they might not be moving a ton, but they're there and they're seeing the other people and interacting a little. And it's, that's been a very rich experience too. Great. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool to hear. So I, you know, I think that there, I think that there's going to be some silver linings from this, but, but a lot of people really want and need to get back to those in-person classes. Oh yeah. But I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's um, maybe particularly hard to talk about silver linings in January of 2022, but, but I agree. Even when you look at some of the stuff we found, like, almost no one was doing virtual classes before. Like that's, it's good that there's going to be virtual classes offered, right. Or more of them. Right. I mean, that right. just, and it's not even all these things we talked about, but it's all like 
even some of the basic equity things that we, you know, haven't even touched on that we didn't ask about of just people that are not in these urban centers or people that are don't yeah. have a caregiver that can take them. Um, right. We need them, I, I think. Um, and so finding ways to, to make them as effective as possible, not just physically, but also emotionally yeah, uh, is, is going to be important to do. So, yeah, I've actually started doing one for people with Huntington's disease. And there are so few people with Huntington's that we have not a lot of participants, but they're from a wide geographic region, yeah, which sure. is super cool. You know, our guy in the Midwest, we're like, Hey, what's our, what's the weather? Cause that's going to be our weather in two days, you know? So, yeah. cause we're on the East coast. So it there, you're right. I think that there is the potential to meet the needs of some people that can't, and they come, they so appreciate seeing other people with HD because they hardly ever do, you know? Yeah. Cause there's not many people and there's, it's relatively rare. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, that just that your comment made me think of that group because they definitely appreciate like being together with each other, even though it's yeah. virtually because they, they can't really do it in person. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, that's great. Yeah, it's fun. So, Mark, thank you so much for talking to us about this article. I think it's been super interesting and our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. We encourage people to look it up and read the article. So thanks for bringing the information. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. And, you know, we like to ask people at the end of our podcast what they do when they're not working. So tell us what you like to do. Uh, well, it changes what I like to do, I think, based on the time of year. So being winter, I spend a lot of time. I have twin, well, they're about to be 11. So they're 10 going on 11-year-olds. And we have a relatively impressive Lego collection. And we build a lot. And so it's just with the holidays just hitting, we have a, yeah. a bunch of new sets. And we've been down in the basement uh, having fun. So Sweet. And do they do like? The robotics ones too, or you have robotics, yet. but we have uh, we have a huge table that's like this huge um, Lego town that they've built. We well, we've built. I have to say that I'm there yeah. a lot. So yeah, it's that's fun. fun. So fun. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you at some point in the future because I know that you're continuing to do great work and. Um, we're so excited to have you as a regular contributor to our podcast. Well, that's nice of you to say. It's, it's, it was good to be here again. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Christina Burke, and Casey Burris. I'm Parm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Mark, you know, we ask people what they like to do when they're not working. Oh, but I'd, what if you don't do anything? But I if I was downstairs, I could show you, but it wouldn't come through on a podcast, so... So I wish that I was actually in my basement because my husband was a coach of the Lego league. Oh. So he has this like trope, this Lego trophy. And it's in the basement. It's not in our tiny little office. Could be the- about it.
I have one of those degrees. Get those out of there. <laughs> they say, they say you can ski with your kids for one day. Like you're you're basically teaching them, and then there's like one sweet day, and then after that, like they're just so much better than you. That yes, that's yeah. So we've hit that point. 